Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. I live in Southern California, Los Angeles. This is Baja Norte. If you do not speak Spanish in Los Angeles, you're missing out on a whole lot. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, LeVar Burton Reed's listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash LeVar. That's rosettastone.com slash L-E-V-A-R. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of fiction and read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you do too. And I am thrilled to share an amazing story with you today. It was recorded in front of a live audience with live musical accompaniment in San Francisco, It's a story by Charlie Jane Anders. Charlie Jane is an award-winning science fiction and speculative fiction writer. She was also the co-founder of the science fiction site io9. Her latest novel, All the Birds in the Sky, has won a bunch of awards, including a Nebula, a Crawford, and the Locus Award. And I must say, I lucked out with an amazing musical accompaniment provided by the keyboardist Anthony Ferraro. Anthony is a classically trained pianist who now plays with his own group called Astronauts, etc. He also tours playing keyboards with Toro y Moi. And stay tuned after the story ends for my onstage conversation with Charlie Jane Anders. Now, today's story is from Charlie Jane's collection entitled Six Months, Three Days, Five Others. It's called As Good As New. And because I don't want to spoil too much of this for you, all I'm going to tell you is this. When our story begins, we find our protagonist, Marisol, in a very unusual predicament. So, enjoy. So, if you're ready, let's take a deep breath. Y'all really do breathe when we breathe on that. I always wonder, are they breathing while listening to the... Y'all are breathing. Okay. <laughs> Let's do that one more time. Just Let's take a deep breath. And we'll begin. As Good As New by Charlie Jane Anders. Marisol got into an intense relationship with the people on the facts of life, to the point where Tootie and Mrs. Garrett became her imaginary best friends. She told Tootie about the rash she got from wearing the same bra every day for two years. And she had a long talk with Mrs. Garrett about her regrets that she hadn't said a proper goodbye to her best friend Julie and her on-again, off-again boyfriend Rod before they died, along with everybody else. The Pentagram had pretty much every TV show ever made on its hard drive, with multiple backup systems and a fail-proof generator, so there was nothing stopping Marisol from marathoning the facts of life for 16 hours a day, 
starting over again with season one when she got to the end of the bedraggled final season. The media server also had tons of video of live theater, but Marisol didn't watch that because it made her feel guilty, not survivor guilt, failed playwright guilt. Her last proper conversation with a living human had been an argument with Julie about Marisol's decision to go to medical school instead of trying to write more plays. Fuck doctors, man! Julie had spat. People are going to die no matter what you do. Theater is important. Marisol had hung up on Julie and gone back to the pre-med books, staring at the exposed musculature and blood vessels as if they were costume designs for a skeleton theater troupe. The quakes always happened at the worst moment, just when Joe or Blair was about to reveal something heartfelt and serious. The whole panic room would shake, throwing Marisol against the padded walls or ceiling. A reminder that the rest of the world was probably dead. At first, these quakes were constant. Then they happened a few times a day. Then once a day. Then a few times a week. Then a few times a month. Marisol knew that once a month or two passed without the world going sideways, she would have to go out and investigate. She would have to leave her friends at the Eastland School and venture into a bleak world. Sometimes Marisol thought she had a duty to stay in the panic room since she was personally keeping the human race alive. But then she thought, what if there was someone else living and they needed help? Marisol was pre-med. She might be able to do something. What if there was a man and Marisol could help him repopulate the species? The panic room had blue leather walls and a carpeted floor that felt nice to walk on, and enough gourmet frozen dinners to last Marisol a few lifetimes. She only had the pair of shoes she'd brought in there with her, and it would seem weird to wear shoes after two barefoot years. The real world was in here, in the panic room, and out there was nothing but an afterimage of a bad trip. Marisol was an award-winning playwright, but that hadn't saved her from the end of the world. She was taking pre-med classes and trying to get a scholarship to med school so she could give cancer screenings to low-income women in her native Taos, but that didn't save her either. Nor did the fact that she believed in God every other day. What actually saved Marisol from the end of the world was the fact that she took a job cleaning Burton Henstridge's mansion to help her through school, and she'd happened to be scrubbing his fancy Japanese toilet when the quakes had started, within easy reach of Burton's state-of-the-art panic room. She had found the hidden opening mechanism some weeks earlier while cleaning the porcelain cat figures. When Morisol let herself think about all the people she could never talk to again, she got so choked up, she wanted to punch someone. She experienced grief in the form of freakouts that left her unable to breathe or think. And then she popped in another Facts of Life. As she watched, she chewed her nails until she was in danger of gnawing off her fingertips. The door to the panic room wouldn't open when Marisol finally decided it had been a couple of months since the last quake and it was time to go out there. She had to kick the door a dozen times until she dislodged enough debris to stagger out into the wasteland. The cold slapped her in the face and extremities, extra bitter after two years at room temperature. Burton's house was gone. The panic room was just a cube, half buried in the ruins, covered in some yellowy insulation that looked like it would burn your fingers. Everything out there was white, like snow or paper, except powdery and brittle, ashen. She had a Geiger counter from the panic room, which read zero. She couldn't figure out what the hell had happened to the world for a long time until it hit her. This was fungus. 
some kind of highly corrosive fungus that had rushed over everything like a tidal wave and consumed every last bit of organic material, then died. It had come in wave after wave with incredible violence until it had exhausted the last of its food supply. She gleaned this from the consistency of the crud that had coated every bit of rubble, but also from the putrid, sweet and sour smell that she could not stop smelling once she noticed it. She kept imagining she saw the white powder starting to move out of the corner of her eye, advancing toward her. The fungus would have all died out when there was nothing left for it to feed on, Marisol said aloud. There's no way it could still be alive. She tried to pretend some other person, an expert or something, had said that, and thus it was authoritative. The fungus was dead. It couldn't hurt her now. Because if the fungus wasn't dead, then she was screwed. Even if it didn't kill her, it would wreck the panic room. She hadn't been able to seal it properly behind her without locking herself out. Hello! Marisol kept yelling. Anybody there? Anybody? She couldn't even make sense of the landscape. It was just blinding white as far as the eye can see with bits of blanched stonework jutting out. No way to discern streets or houses or cars or anything. She was about to go back to the panic room and hope it was still untouched so she could eat another frozen lamb vindaloo and watch some madmen for a change. <laughs> and then she spotted something, a dot of color way off in the pale ruins. The bottle was a deep oaky green, like smoked glass with a cork in it. Somehow, it had avoided being consumed in the endless waves of fungal devastation. It looked as though someone had just put it down a second ago. In fact, Marisol's first response was to yell, Hello! even louder than before. When there was no answer, she picked up the bottle. In her hands, it felt bumpy, like an embossed label had been worn away, and there didn't seem to be any liquid inside. She removed the cork. A sparkly mist streamed out of the bottle's narrow mouth, glittering like the cheap glitter at the arts and crafts table at summer camp when Marisol was a little girl. Misty like a smoke machine at a nightclub, and it resolved into a shape in front of Marisol. A man, a little taller than her and much bigger. Marisol was so startled and grateful at no longer being alone, she almost didn't pause to wonder how this man had appeared out of nowhere after she opened a bottle, a bottle that had survived when everything else was crushed. Then she did start to wonder, but the only explanations seemed too ludicrous to believe. Hello and congratulations, the man said in a pleasant tone. He looked Jewish and wore a cheap suit. His dark hair fell onto his high forehead in lank strands, and he had a heavy beard shadow. Thank you for opening my bottle. I am pleased to offer you three wishes. <laughs> then he looked around, his dour expression worsened. Oh, fuck. He said, <laughs> not again. <laughs> Wait, Marisol said, you're a, you're a genie? I hate that term, the man said. I prefer wish facilitator. <laughs> and for your information, I used to be just a regular person. I was the theater critic at the New York Times for six months. <laughs> in 1958, which I still think defines me much more than my current engagement does. But I tried to bamboozle the wrong individual, so I got stuck in a bottle and forced to grant wishes to anyone who opens it. 
You were a theater critic? Marisol said, I'm a playwright. I won a contest and had a play produced off-Broadway. Well, actually, I'm a pre-med student and I clean houses for money. But in my off-off hours, I'm a playwright, I guess. Oh, the man said. Well, if you want me to tell you your plays are very good, then that will count as one of your three wishes. And honestly, I don't think you're going to benefit from good publicity very much in the current climate. He gestured around at the bleak white landscape. My name was Richard Wolfe, by the way. Marisol, she said. Marisol Guzman. Nice to meet you. He extended his hand, but didn't actually try to shake hers. She wondered if she would go right through him. She was standing in a world of stinky chalk, talking to a self-loathing genie. After two years alone in a box, that didn't even seem weird, really. So, this was it, right? She could fix everything. She could make a wish and everything would be back the way it was. She could talk to Julie again and apologize for hanging up on her. She could see Rod and maybe figure out what they were to each other. She just had to say the words, I wish. She started to speak and then something Richard Wolfe had said a moment earlier registered in her brain. Wait a minute, she said. What did you mean, not again? Oh, that. Richard Wolfe swatted around his head like he was trying to swat non-existent insects. I couldn't say. I mean, I can answer any question you want, but that counts as one of your wishes. There are rules. Oh, Marisol said. Well... I don't want to waste a wish on a question, not, not when I can figure this out on my own. You said not again the moment you saw all this, so this isn't the first time this has happened. Your bottle can probably survive anything, right, because it's magic or something? The dark green bottle still had a heft to it, even after she'd released its contents. She threw it at a nearby rock a few times. Not a scratch. So... She said, the world ends, your bottle doesn't get damaged, even if one person survives, they find your bottle, and the first thing they wish for is for the world not to have ended. Richard Wolfe shrugged, but he also sort of nodded at the same time like he was confirming her hunch. His scuffed wingtip shoes were see-through, she noticed. The first time was in 1962, he said. The Cuban Missile Crisis, they called it afterwards. This is not counting as one of my wishes because I didn't ask a question, Marisol said. Fine, fine, Richard Wolfe rolled his eyes. I got tired of listening. When I was reviewing for the Times, I always tore into plays that had too many endless speeches. Fucking Brecht made everybody think three-page speeches were clever. (laughs) Your plays don't have a lot of monologues, do they? I don't go in for too many monologues, Marisol said. So, someone finds your bottle. They wish for the apocalypse not to have happened, and then they probably make a second wish to try and make sure it doesn't happen again. Except, here we are, so it obviously didn't work the last time. I could not possibly comment, (laughs) Richard Wolfe said. Although I should say that people get the wrong idea about my occupation, meaning wish facilitators, not theater critics. People had the wrong idea when I was a theater critic, too. They thought it was my job to promote the theater, to put buns in seats, even for terrible plays. That was not my job at all. The theater has been an endangered species for a long time, Marisol said. She looked around the pasty white yeast-scented deathscape 
a sort of world of wonder bread. <laughs> I mean, I get why people want criticism that is essentially cheerleading, even if that doesn't push anybody to do their best work. Well, if you think of theater as some sort of delicate flower that needs to be kept protected in some sort of hothouse, well, then you're going to end up with something that only the faithful few will appreciate. You'll end up worsening the very marginalization you're seeking to prevent. Montessori was being very careful to avoid asking anything resembling a question because she was probably going to need all three of her wishes. I, I would guess the, the job of a theater critic is misunderstood in sort of the opposite way than the job of a genie, she said. Everybody is afraid a theater critic will be too brutally honest, but a genie? Everybody thinks I'm out to swindle them. Richard Wolfe threw his hands in the air, thinking of all the isuris he had endured when in fact it's always the client who can't express a wish in clear and straightforward terms, they always leave out crucial information. It's like stage directions without any stage left or stage right. I, I interpret as best as I can. Well, of course you do, Marisol said. This was all starting to creep her out, and her gratitude at having another person to talk to who wasn't Mrs. Garrett was getting driven out by her discomfort at standing in the ruins of the world kibitzing about theater criticism. <laughs> she picked up the bottle, where it lay undamaged after hitting the rock, and found the cork. Wait a minute, Richard Wolfe said. You don't want to... He was sucked back inside the bottle before she finished putting the cork back in. She reopened the bottle once she was back inside the panic room with the door sealed. She watched three episodes of The Facts of Life, trying to get her equilibrium back, before she microwaved some sukiyaki and let Richard Wolfe out again. He started his spiel about how he had to give her three wishes, then stopped and looked around. Huh! He sat and floated an inch above the sofa. Nice digs. Real calfskin on this sofa. Is this like a bunker? I can't answer any of your questions, Marisol said. <laughs> or that counts as a wish you owe me. <laughs> oh, don't be like that. <laughs> Richard Wolfe ruffled his two-tone lapels. I'm just trying not to create any loopholes, because once there are loopholes, it brings everyone grief in the end. Trust me, you wouldn't want the rules to be messy here. He rifled through the media collection until he found a copy of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, which he made a big show of studying until Marisol finally loaded it for him. This is better than I remembered. Richard Wolfe said an hour later. Good to know, Marisol said. I never got around to watching that one. I met Tennessee Williams, you know, Richard said. He wasn't nearly as drunk as you might have thought. <laughs> so here's what I figure. You do your best to implement the wishes that people give you to the letter. Marisol said. So if someone says they want to make sure that a nuclear war never happens again, you do your best to make a nuclear war impossible. And then maybe that change leads to some other catastrophe, and then the next person tries to make some wishes that prevent that thing from happening again, and on and on, until this. This is actually the longest conversation I've had since I became a wish facilitator. Richard crossed his leg ankle over thigh. Usually it's just womp bump a lula three wishes and I'm back in the bottle. So tell me about your prize winning play. If you want, I mean, it's up to you. <laughs> Marisol told Richard about her play, which seemed like something an acquaintance had written many lifetimes ago. It was a one act, she said, about a man who is trying to break up with his girlfriend, but Every time he's about to dump her, he, she does something to remind him why he used to love her. So he hires a male escort to seduce her instead, so she'll cheat on him and he can have a reason to break up with her. 
Richard was giving a blank expression as though he couldn't trust himself to show a reaction. It's a comedy, Marisol explained. Sorry, Richard said, it sounds awful. <laughs> he hires a gigolo to sleep with his girlfriend. It sounds, oh, I just don't know what to say. Well, you were a theater critic in the 1950s, right? I, I guess it was a different era. I don't think that's the problem, <laughs> Richard said. It just sounds sort of misanthropic, or actually woman-hating, with a slight veneer of irony. I don't know. Maybe that's the sort of thing everybody is into these days, or was into before the world ended yet again. This is something like the fifth or sixth time the world has ended. I'm losing count, to be quite honest. Marisol was put out that this fossil was casting aspersions on her contest-winning play, but the longer she kept him talking, the more clues he dropped without costing her any wishes. So, she bit her lip. So, there were a dozen, or a half-dozen, Apocalypses, Marisol said, and I guess each of them was caused by people trying to prevent the last one from happening again by making wishes. So, that white stuff out there, some kind of bioengineered corrosive fungus, I thought. But maybe it was created to prevent some kind of climate-related disaster. It, it does seem awfully reflective of sunlight. Oh, yes, it reflects sunlight just wonderfully, Richard said. The temperature of the planet is going to be dropping a lot in the next decade. No danger of global warming now. <laughs> ha! Marisol said, and you claim you're just doing the most straightforward job possible. You're addicted to irony. You sat through too many Brecht plays, even though you hate, claim to hate them. You probably loved Beckett as well. <laughs> All right-thinking people love Beckett, <laughs> said Richard. So, you had some success as a playwright, and yet you're studying to be a doctor, or were, before this unfortunate business, why not stick with the theater? Is that a question? Marisol said. Richard started to backpedal, but then she answered him anyway. I wanted to help people, really help people. Live theater reaches fewer and fewer people, especially brand new plays by brand new playwrights. And meanwhile, poor people are dying of preventable cancers every day back home in Taos. I couldn't fool myself that writing a play that 20 people saw would do as much good as screening 100 people for cervical cancer. Richard paused and looked her over. You're a good person, he said. I almost never get picked up by anyone who's actually not a terrible human being. <laughs> it's all relative. My protagonist who hires an escort to seduce his girlfriend considers himself a good person too. <laughs> does it work? The male escort thing, does she sleep with him? Are you asking me a question? Wolf shrugged and rolled his eyes in that operatic way he did, which he'd probably practiced in a mirror. <laughs> I will owe you an extra wish. Sure. Why not? Does it work with a gigolo? <laughs> Marisol had to search her memory for a second. She had written that play in such a different frame of mind. No, the boyfriend keeps feeding the male escort lines to seduce his girlfriend via a Bluetooth earpiece. It's meant to be a postmodern Cyrano de Bergerac, and she figures it out and starts using the escort to screw with her boyfriend. In the end, the boyfriend and the male escort get together because the boyfriend and the escort have seduced each other while flirting <laughs> with the girlfriend. Richard cringed on top of the sofa <laughs> with his face in his insubstantial hands. That's terrible, <laughs> he said. I can't believe I gave you an extra wish just to find that out. 
Wow, thanks. I can see why people hated you when you were a theater critic. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, maybe it was better on the stage. I bet you have a flair for dialogue. It, it, it sounds so, I mean, postmodern Cyrano de Bergerac? I heard all about postmodernism from this one graduate student who opened my bottle in the early 1990s, and it sounded dreadful. <laughs> you really did make a wise choice becoming a doctor. <laughs> Screw you. Marisol decided to raid the relatively tiny liquor cabinet in the panic room and pour herself a vodka. You're the one who's been living in a bottle, so all of this is your fault. She waved her hand, indicating the devastation outside the panic room. You caused it all with some excessively ironic wish-granting. That's a very skewed construction of events. If the white sludge was caused by a wish that somebody made, and I'm not saying that it was, then it's not my fault. It's the fault of the wisher. Okay, Marisol said. Richard drew to attention, thinking she was finally ready to make her first wish. Instead, she said, I need to think, and put the cork back in the bottle. Marisol watched a season and a half of I Dream of Jeannie. <laughs> which did not help at all. She ate some delicious beef stroganoff and drank more vodka. She slept and watched TV and slept and drank coffee and ate an omelet. She had no circadian rhythm to speak of anymore. She had four wishes, and the overwhelming likelihood was that she would foul them up. And maybe next time there wouldn't be one person left alive to find the bottle and fix her mistake. This was pretty much exactly like trying to cure a patient, Marisol realized. You give someone medicine, which fixes their disease but causes deadly side effects, or reduces the patient's resistance to other infections. You didn't just want to get rid of one pathogen, you wanted to help the patient reach homeostasis again except that the world was an infinitely more complex system than a single human being. And then again, making a big wish was like writing a play with the entire human race as players. Blah. She could wish that the fungus had never dissolved the world, but then she would be faced with whatever climate disaster the fungus had prevented. She could make a blanket wish that the world would be safe from global disasters for the next thousand years and maybe unleash a millennium of stagnation, or worse, depending upon the definition of safe. She guessed that wishing for a thousand wishes wouldn't work, and in fact, that kind of shenanigans might be how Richard Wolff wound up where he was now. The media server in the panic room had a bazillion movies and TV episodes about the monkey paw, the Wishing Ring, the Magic Fountain, the Faustian Bargain, the Jen, the Vengeance Demon, and so on. So she had plenty of time to soak up the accumulated wisdom of the human race on the topic of making wishes, which amounted to a pile of cliches. Maybe she would have done more good as a playwright than a doctor after all. Cliches were like plaque in the arteries of the imagination. They clogged our sense of what was possible. Maybe if enough people had worked to demolish cliches, the world wouldn't have ended. Marisol and Richard sat and watched the facts of life together. <laughs> Richard kept saying things like, this is worse than being trapped inside a bottle. <laughs> but he also seemed to enjoy complaining about it. This show, kept me marginally sane when I was the only person on earth, Marisol said. I still can't wrap my mind around what happened to the human race. So you are conscious of the passage of time when you're inside the bottle. She was very careful to avoid phrasing anything as a question. It's very strange, Richard said. When I'm in the bottle, it's like 
I'm in a sensory deprivation tank, except not particularly warm. I float with no sense of who or where I am. But meanwhile, another part of me is getting flashes of awareness of the world. I might be hyper-aware of one ant carrying a single crumb up a stem of grass for eternity, or I might have a vague sense of clouds over the ocean, or some old woman's aches and pains. It's like hyper-lucid dreaming, sort of. Shh, said Marisol. This is the good part. Joe is about to lay some Brooklyn wisdom on these spoiled rich girls. <laughs> the episode ended, and another episode started right away. You take the good, you take the bad, Richard groaned loudly. So, what's your plan, if I may ask? You're just going to sit here and watch television? No reason to hurry, Marisol said. I can spend a decade coming up with perfect wishes. I have tons of frozen dinners. At last, she took pity on Richard and found a stash of PBS American Playhouse episodes on the media server, plus other random theater stuff. Richard really liked Carol Churchill, but didn't care for Alan Ackborn. He hated Wendy Wasserstein. Eventually, she put him back in the bottle. <laughs> Marisol started writing down possible draft wishes in one of three blank journals she'd found in a drawer, and then she started writing a brand new play instead. The first time she'd even tried in a few years. Her play was about a man. Her protagonists were always men, who moves to a big city to become a librarian and winds up working for a strange old lady tending her collection of dried-out leaves from every kind of tree in the world. Pedro is so shy he can't even speak to more than two people, but so beautiful that everyone wants him to be a model. He pays an optometrist to put drops in his eyes so he won't see the people photographing and lighting him when he poses. She had no clue how this play was going to end, but she felt a responsibility to finish it. That's what Mrs. Garrett would expect. <laughs> she was still stung by the idea that her prize-winning play was dumb, or worse yet, kind of misogynistic. She wished she had an actual copy of that play so she could show it to Richard and he would realize her true genius. But she didn't wish that out loud, of course. And maybe this was the kick in the ass she needed to write a better play, a play that made sense of some of this mess. I've figured it out, she told Richard the next time she opened his bottle. I've figured out what happened those other times. Someone finds your bottle after the apocalypse and they get three wishes. So the first wish is to bring the world back and reverse the destruction. The second wish is to make sure it doesn't happen again, but then they still have one wish left, and that's the one where they wish for something selfish, like irresistible sex appeal. Or perfect hair, <laughs> said Richard Wolfe, doing his patented eye roll and air swat. Or unlimited wealth, or fame, or everlasting youth in beauty, or the perfect lasagna recipe. They probably figured they deserved it. Marisol stared at the pages of scribble in her hand. On one set of diagrams mapping out her new play, as yet unnamed, a second set of diagrams trying to plan out the wish-making process act by act. Her own scent clung to every surface. The recirculated air smelled like the inside of her own mouth. I mean, they saved the world, right? Except that I bet that's where it all goes wrong. That's an interesting theory, said Wolf, arms folded and head tilted like he was physically restraining himself from expressing an opinion. Marisol threw out almost every part of her play except the part about her main character needing to be temporarily vision impaired so he can model. That part seemed to speak to her once she cleared away the clutter about the old woman in the leaves. Pedro stands nearly nude in a room full of people doing makeup and lighting and photography and catering, and they're all blurs to him. And he falls in love with one woman, but he only knows her voice, not her face. 
And he's afraid to ruin it by learning her name or seeing what she looks like. Marisol kept thinking she would know what to wish for as soon as she finished writing her play. She labored over the first scene for a week before she had the nerve to show it to Richard. And he kept narrowing his eyes and breathing loudly through his nose as he read it. But then he said it was actually a promising start. Actually, not terrible at all. The mystery woman phones Pedro, and he recognizes her voice. So now he has her phone number, and he agonizes about calling her. What's he afraid of, anyway? He decides his biggest fear is that he'll go out on a date with the woman, and people will stare at the two of them. If the woman is as beautiful as Pedro, they'll stare because it's two beautiful people together. If she's plain-looking, they'll stare because they wonder what he sees in her. When Pedro eats out alone, he has a way of shrinking in on himself so nobody notices him. But he can't do that on a date. At last, Pedro calls her and they talk for hours. On stage, she is partially hidden from the audience so they too can't see what she looks like. It's a theme in your work, hmm, Richard Wolfe sniffed. The hidden person, the flirting through a veil, the self-loathing narcissistic love affair. I guess so, Marisol said. I'm interested in people who are seen and people who see, and the female gaze, and whatever. She finished the play, and it occurred to her that if she made a wish that none of this stuff had happened, her new play could be unwritten as a result. When the time came to make her wishes, she rolled up the notebook and tucked it into her sweatpants, hoping that anything on her immediate person would be preserved when the world was transformed. In the end, Pedro agrees to meet the woman, Susanna, for a drink. But he gets some of the eye-dilating drops from his optometrist friend. He can't decide whether to put the drops in his eyes before the date. He's in the men's room at the bar where they're meeting with the bottle in his hand, dithering. And then someone disturbs him. And he accidentally drops the bottle in the toilet. And Susanna turns out to be pretty. Not like a model, but more distinctive. She has a memorable face, full of life. She laughs a lot, and Pedro stops feeling shy around her, and he discovers that if he looks into Susanna's eyes when he's modeling, he no longer needs the eye drops to shut out the rest of the world. It's a corny ending, Marisol admitted, but I like it. Richard Wolfe shrugged. Anything is better than unearned ambivalence. Marisol decided that was a good review. <laughs> Coming from him. Here's what Marisol wished. I wish this apocalypse and all previous apocalypses had never happened and that all previous wishes relating to that apocalypse had never been wished. Two. I wish that there was a slight alteration in the laws of probability as relating to apocalyptic scenarios, so that if, for example, an event threatened the survival of the human race has a 10% chance of happening, that 10% chance just never comes up. And yet, this does not change anything else in the material world. Three, I wish that I, and my designated heirs would keep possession of this bottle and would receive ample warning before any apocalyptic scenario comes up so that we would have a chance to make the final wish. She had all three wishes written neatly on a sheet of paper torn out of the notebook and Richard Wolfe scrutinized it a couple of times, scratching his ear. That's it? 
he said at last. You do realize I can make anything real, right? You could create a world of giant snails and tiny people. You could make the facts of life the most popular TV show in the world for the next thousand years. You could do anything. Marisol shook her head. The only way to make sure we don't end up back here again is to keep it simple. And then, before she lost her nerve, she picked up the paper where she'd written down her three wishes and she read them aloud. Everything went cheaply glittery around Marisol, and the panic room reshaped into the Infinite Ristretto, a trendy cafe that happened to be roughly the same size and shape as the panic room. The blue leather walls turned to brown brick with brass fixtures and posters for the legendary all-nude productions of Mammoth's Oleana and Norman's Night Mother. All around Marisol, friends whose names she'd forgotten hunched over laptops. Her best friend, Julia, was in the middle of yelling at her, freckles almost washed out by her reddening face. Fuck doctors! Julia was shouting, loud enough to disrupt the whole room. Theater is a direct intervention. It's like a cultural ambulance. Actors are like paramedics. Playwrights are surgeons, man. Marisol was still wearing Burton's stained business shirt and sweatpants, but somehow she'd gotten a pair of flip-flops. The green bottle sat on the rickety white table nearby. Queen was playing on the stereo. The scent of overpriced coffee was like the armpit of God. (laughs) Julia's harangue choked off in the middle because Marisol was giving her the biggest stage hug in the universe crying into Julia's green-streaked hair and thanking all her stars that they were here together. By now, everyone was staring, but Marisol didn't care. Something fluttery and heavy fell out of her waistband. A notebook. I have something to tell you, Jules, Marisol breathed in Julia's ear. She wanted to ask if the Cold War was still over and whatever, but she would find out soon enough, and this was more important. Uh, Jules, I wrote a new play. It's all done, and it's going to change everything. Hyperbole was how Marisol and Julia and all their friends communicated. (laughs) Do you want to read it? Are you seriously high? (laughs) Julia pulled away, then saw the notebook on the floor between their feet. Curiosity took over, and she picked it up. Marisol borrowed five bucks and got herself a pour-over while Julia sat, knees in her face, reading the play. Every few minutes, Julia glanced up and said, Well, okay, in a grudging tone as if Marisol might not be past saving after all. The end. Please give it up one more time for Mr. Ferrero. Thank you, brother. So would you join me, y'all, in welcoming to the stage Charlie Jane Anders, the author of tonight's story. Have a seat, Charlie Jane. Have a seat, have a seat, have a seat. So, as good as new, it's about a playwright and, uh, slash med student and a theater critic. Uh, 
Talk a little bit about the inspiration for, for this story and, and where in that twisted imagination of yours that it comes from. Yeah, I mean, it originally came from the idea of what if there was an apocalypse and somebody found a genie in the bottle? That was like the setup in my mind because I was like, well, logically the genie in the bottle would survive any apocalyptic scenario because it's a magical object. And I remember texting a friend of mine, I think I've come up with a new genie in a bottle story. Like I was like, maybe nobody's done this one before. I don't know. And so that, sometimes I just fall in love with like a, an idea that's really mm. shiny mm -hmm. and like fascinating in that way. But then that's not a story. Mm. Like what makes it a story is the characters. And like, so that's where I usually get hung up and spend a lot of time just kind of walking into walls and, and kind of talking to myself and trying to figure it out. And I think, you know, for me, a lot of it ended up being about the character of Marisol mm -hmm. and giving her, like, a life that's beyond just what the story is about. Mm -hmm. Like, the fact that her main conflict is not just how does she undo the apocalypse, but does she want to be a doctor or a medical student? That just gives her a dimension that makes me kind of buy into her and be interested in her. And so once I had that... I don't remember how the genie became a theater critic, but it just kind of fell into place, <laughs> I guess. That I was a stroke of genius, <laughs> I, I, I have to say. Well, thanks. I just didn't want it to be like your traditional like kind of genie archetype because right. that has a lot of cultural you know, history associated with it. There's a lot of stuff that you really have to do justice to if you're going to go that way. Yeah. And I wanted to just do something that was really off the wall and weird and different so that I could just do something really silly with it and not have to worry about it as much. You, you, you really figured it out. I mean, not only did you create compelling, interesting characters that I wanted to, to know more about, you really figured out, had to figure out, and then deliver in the story what to do with three wishes in the event <laughs> of an apocalypse. That's not easy. Yeah, there was a lot of trial and error. Like, I sort of, that part where Marisol sits and, like, watches TV and microwaves things, and, yeah. like, that was real. That actually happened. <laughs> <laughs> that part was true. <laughs> that, was, that was accurate. <laughs> you have, have said of, about your, your writing that science fiction is a tool to discover who we are. And how to lead a good life. When I read this story the first time, and probably the second time, it wasn't until about the third time I read this story that I really began to fall in love with Marisol. I, 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 I thought she was fairly callow at the beginning of my journey with this story. And then I came to really embrace her and really see her as someone of substance. Yeah, I mean, listening to you read it was really interesting because it definitely made me think about it in a different way. And that's, you know, it's, it's magical when you get to hear, like, one of, your, one of your stories that way. You know, I mean, I think that Marisol, I really wanted her to actually grow and change over the course of the story, which meant that she had to kind of start out being a little bit naive. And her first play that she describes is clearly not as good as the one she writes later. Right. And it's clearly much more kind of surface and just clever. It's mm -hmm. a clever play rather than a, a deep play. About, about something that has yeah. meaning, yeah. It's a, it's a play with like a clever twist, right. and it's got like, and I guess, a post, you know... A, a, what, what did you call a postmodern Cyrano de Bergerac? <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> and I guess that's kind of what I was getting at, is just this idea of cleverness and like how cleverness is not a substitute for like actually saying something real or yeah. talking about real stuff. Right. And Absolutely. so that was kind of... I. I worried that people weren't going to love her, like that I was kind of making her too much the butt of a joke mm. in some of those parts. And I, I think I wouldn't write her that way now. I think that I'm much more conscious. I wrote that story like maybe five years ago, and I think I'm more conscious now of like really trying to make sure that whatever humor there is is not at the expense of the character. I think mm. that happens with Marisol a few times in that story, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that she's kind of the butt of the joke a little bit. Right. But it was also like, I identify with her. So when I'm making fun of her, it's really like, especially the kind of thing of like, being seduced by your own cleverness. That's something that I know and that I've lived. And you know, that you end up with just something that doesn't hold together. Um, so, but yeah, I, I feel like I've gotten more conscious of not wanting to make my characters like the source of the humor in that way. Your 
beginnings as a writer, I, I read, began fairly early in your life. Um, kindergarten. That's right. And, and Miss Pennington? That's right. Oh my gosh, yeah, you found that essay. <laughs> yeah, uh, when I was, yeah, when I was like in first grade, I, I almost flunked. I flunked out of first, almost flunked out of first How grade. How does one flunk out of first grade, I'm, Charlie <laughs> Jane Anders? <laughs> you know, I, I couldn't do any of the work. I couldn't write, I, like I could read, but I couldn't put words on paper. I couldn't do basic math, like even really simple math. I couldn't, like my, I had like a really severe learning disability in first grade. I was severely learning disabled. I also had some spatial adjustment problems. Hmm. Um, and I just was having a really rough time. And my, the teachers like honestly like hated me. Like my first, second and third grade teachers despised me. And it was like very obvious. And like, um, it was incredibly lucky that my school had hired this special education teacher named Lynn Pennington, who was brand new and really full of energy, and she just took me in hand and spent hours and hours and hours teaching me just basic stuff and drilling me on like just writing letters and doing math and took me to a specialist to get assessed for my math problems. And part of what she would do is, as a reward, if I could master these basic skills, I could write a play, actually a stage play, uh, which I did in like first or second grade. It was called The Bad Cad. The Bad Cad. <laughs> yeah. About? It was about a kid who's a bad cad, who's like a mean and naughty kid who goes around causing trouble uh-huh. and playing pranks on the principal, who is clueless. Uh-huh. And, you know, we staged it. We, we did a performance of it. You put The Bad Cad on Yes, it was my school. one and only pr- production of a play of mine. And my brother played the principal, my older brother. Wish fulfillment. <laughs> yes. And later she had me do like a fake newspaper. She took me to a newspaper office and showed me how they like print the newspapers and where they like printing presses and the offices and everything. And then she had me make my own newspaper. She was an amazing teacher. I still, uh, my, my partner Annalie and I had dinner with her a few years ago. You, you keep in touch with Miss Pennington? Of course I do. Yeah. And like, you know, she's like my idol. And, you know, she, she changed, she's, she changed my life. She saved me. You know, uh, when I wrote that article that you found, uh, I Skyped with her for like an hour or two and talked about it. And uh, yeah, she, she totally, like, I would not be here. I wouldn't be a writer. I wouldn't be, I don't know what I would be. Never, ever, ever underestimate the power of a teacher. Seriously. No, seriously. Yeah. That is awesome. Yeah, and she's still working in education now. She's now in Georgia, you know, trying to help kids who are slipping through the cracks there, the education system. Uh, she runs a nonprofit there. She's amazing. I mean, she's still doing it. Wow. Well, in saving you, Charlie Jane Anders, she preserved for all of us a talent rich oh. and delicious <laughs> and wickedly funny thoughtful, introspective, and a voice that this world, at this particular time, really needs. (laughs) Thank you. Charlie Jane's next novel, she's described it as a super intense story about humans living on another planet over a thousand years in the future. What can you tell us about this, if anything? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much of this is like new information, so you guys may be getting a scoop. It's called uh, The City in the Middle of the Night, Mm -hmm. and it takes place on a planet that's tidally locked, which means that there's a permanent day side and a permanent night side. And people live in this so its little orbit, its 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 geosynchronous orbit is locked. It just yeah. it does not rotate. It doesn't. This I think actually somebody can correct me on this. I think a tidally locked planet does rotate, but its rotation is in such a way that it doesn't actually ever change its orientation. Understood. Like the moon is tidally locked to Earth. Hey, I've been in space. <laughs> <laughs> I know how these things work. (laughs) (laughs) And so my main, so basically these people live in this little strip of twilight 
like between the day side and the night side because the day side is so hot that you would just like burn to death instantly mm-hmm. and the night side is so cold you would freeze to death right. and so they're living in this little strip of twilight I was like well maybe I could call it twilight that's a good title <laughs> or the twilight zone because they're in the zone of twilight but then I was like I think those titles are already taken mm-hmm. I don't know anyway so she's living in this little strip of twilight my main character Sophie and it's this kind of stagnating society and she gets, for various reasons, banished out into the night where she learns to communicate with the creatures that live out there that are actually more intelligent than anybody realized. And it's about learning to understand a form of life that is so different from us mm. that we don't even know that it's intelligent and a creature that lives in total darkness all the time and doesn't have you know, any of the concepts that we have and has like a completely different society. And she finally visits the city in the middle of the night uh, which is like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles away from where she lived. Mm. And uh, just being, you know, in this other society of these creatures. You have actually said um, that nature, our concept of nature, is an intellectual construct, that, that we've made up this term to explain a world that doesn't include us, a world that we really don't understand and have very little capacity to understand. I think that's amazing. First of all, absolutely spot on, but just a fascinating concept. Nature as an intellectual construct because we don't understand it. Yeah, I mean, nature, the idea of nature is, is something that we invented. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you know, uh, my partner, Annalie Newitz, writes about archaeology all the time. And she's always telling me about papers that prove that, you know, we've been terraforming this planet for tens and tens of thousands of years. The rainforest was kind of engineered a long time ago. Uh, she's probably going to correct me as soon as we get off stage. But, you know, <laughs> um, but there's been all these geoengineering projects that humans have been doing since before we had written language, since before we had records, but now archaeology proves that so much of this planet was kind of shaped by us for a long, long, much longer than we realized. Mm. And that, you know, um, the dichotomy between artificial and natural is a false dichotomy, like most dichotomies turn out to be. And the natural world is us, and we are it, and the idea that we can continue to survive without it is ridiculous. And the idea that we're not completely inextricably linked to the natural world, like our fate isn't tied to... To the fate of the planet. Yeah, to the fate of our habitat. Mm-hmm. Like we're like any other creature, we need our habitat to survive. And our habitat is a really, like, we're a delicate flower, the human race. Yes. We, we bloom in certain conditions, not too hot, not too cold, you know, mm-hmm. we, only, we only like it in this one situation that we're rapidly making harder and harder to have. So yeah, um, I think that we need to stop thinking of nature as separate from us. Right. Amen. <laughs> the story that I read tonight is from Charlie Jane's collection, Six Months, Three Days, Five Others. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for Charlie Jane Anders. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is the best in the business, Julia Smith. Music was provided by Anthony Ferraro. Check out his music with his band, Astronauts, etc. They've got music available for purchase at astronautsetc.bandcamp.com. Thank you, as always, to the very apocalyptic Matt Gourley. And my great thanks to Charlie Jean Anders for allowing me to read her story. You can find it in her collection entitled Six Months, Three Days, Five Others. Charlie Jane also has a new podcast with Annalie Newitz called Our Opinions Are Correct. And her next novel will be coming out this January. I want to thank the wonderful staff of the Palace of Fine Arts Theater in San Francisco for hosting this live taping. Y'all were terrific. You can see more at palaceoffinearts.org. And if you love the show, and want to help other people find it, give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. And while you're leaving a review, suggest a story for the show that you'd love to hear me read. 
LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Radelette. I'm LeVar Burton, and you can find me on Twitter at LeVar Burton and LeVar.Burton on Instagram. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word for it. Stitcher. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Save big money on everything. Now at Menards. Make quick work of your outdoor cleaning project with Master Force Outdoor and Landscaping Tools. The 80-volt cordless trimmer is powerful, efficient, and hassle-free. So you spend less time working on your yard and more time enjoying the results. On sale now through May 19th. Check out our wide selection of Master Force tools and see the rest of our deals on Menards.com. Save big money.